Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Yes, hello, and welcome to Chapter 1 of the dubious book of famous deeds. I'm Paul Bates, your host. This is the History Podcast, where we learn about figures of the past through the eyes of the Victorians, as told to us from the unreliable book 1889's The Pictorial Treasury of Famous Men and Famous Deeds. I will read a chapter to a guest. We will tear it apart, find the true story of whomever we're reading about, and lay it out here for your listening pleasure and mental edification. Um, Most of the chapters in this book are about pretty obscure names or things you may not have heard of, but we're starting with a very famous name. We're starting with a very famous figure in history who remains a giant uh, in whose shadow uh, we all live. It's William Shakespeare. I'm talking about Shakespeare. William Shakespeare. What is there to say about William Shakespeare, especially if you're not going to focus on his plays, as this chapter dared to do? We're going to learn a lot about a lot of trivial minutia uh, that's going to add up to, hopefully, a picture of what kind of guy he was. Now, I am not a historian, I am not a scholar, I am not an expert on Shakespeare, but I can promise you, as with every episode in this podcast, I have done my best to research and answer every question this book left unanswered. But if you are an expert, and if you know something I don't, or if I got something wrong, please uh, send me an email, famousdeeds at gmail.com, I'd love to hear from you. Okay, let's get into this. Uh, I'm going to read this chapter to a very good friend of mine. Uh, He is an actor. He is a comedian. He's a writer. You can find him playing Linus, the alien on The Alien on Star Trek, an alien on Star Trek Discovery. His name is David Tomlinson. Let's get to it. Should we just get into it? Yeah, well, you should tell us what this is. Every chapter, if you haven't gleaned it, is about a different man or deed. Now, I guess I should preface that this was written and published at the height of the Victorian age in the British Empire. Right. The sun never set on the British Empire. They, they controlled a quarter of the world. Um, and this book is really written from that perspective. Right. They're better than everyone. We're amazing. Yeah. Too bad for you. And so throughout the book, there's casual racism. Um, there's definitely a, a, a whiff of patriarchy. I, w- I would imagine more than, more than a whiff. Is there a smattering of homophobia as well? Oh, David, they don't talk about that. Oh, <laughs> fair enough. That's not discussed. Fair enough. Yeah. Homosexuality has been uh, retconned. It's... Uh, it's <laughs> 
<laughs> it's been written out of this narrative. We don't talk about such things at the height of the British Empire. No. David, it's chapter one, and they open big. Okay. <laughs> Here we go. Okay. The man for all time. The year of William Shakespeare's birth. <laughs> was a fearful year for Stratford. The plague raged with terrific violence in the little town. It was the same epidemic which ravaged Europe in that year, which in the previous year had desolated London and still continued there. The Red Cross was probably not on the door of John Shakespeare's dwelling. Fortunately for mankind, says Malone, don't know who Malone is, it did not reach the house where the infant Shakespeare lay, for not one of that name appears on the dead list. Wow. Already I'm very intrigued by Malone. Ravaged by Plague. David, do you have any reference level of like what that might be like? To I have a rough idea of what Ravaged by Plague feels like. So in 1564, which was the year Shakespeare was born, mm -hmm. uh, the plague claimed over 200 people in Stratford-upon-Avon, which is a small town, right? Um, including four children on Shakespeare's very street. Oh. And in London, the year before, that was a huge plague. At least 20,000 people died in London. Uh, about a quarter of the population ultimately died. And it was part of the second plague pandemic, which lasted from the 14th century until the 19th century. Oh, which... So when we talk about, hey, it's 2021, <laughs> are we going to get out of this in 2021? Well, I don't know, maybe it'll last 500 years. Right. Yeah. But this... This particular plague, the one that we're talking about, mm -hmm. killed more people than the coronavirus has, proportionately yeah. in terms of percentage of the population. It had a 50% mortality rate. Right. We continue. Thank you. The parish of Stratford was unquestionably the birthplace of William Shakespeare. It feels like it's obvious to say now, but maybe it wasn't back then. <laughs> The only qualifications necessary for the admission of a boy into the Free Grammar School of Stratford were that he should be a resident in the town of seven years of age and able to read. It is impossible to imagine that when the son of John Shakespeare became qualified by age for admission to a school where the best education of the time was given literally for nothing, his father in that year, being chief alderman, should not have sent him to that school. We assume without any hesitation that William Shakespeare did receive every just sense of the word, the education of a scholar. So he had to learn to read before he could go to the free grammar school. And, um, and then he went there. You know what I love is this book is written in this very flowery text. Yeah. And then every so often you'll just stop and articulate what the book has just said in one sentence. And the book used took a full paragraph to go like they're really they're blowing a lot of smoke and sunshine Oh. Up, the, up, this, uh, up this particular lad's butt. They're just getting started. Just wait. To the grammar school, then, with some preparation, we hold that William Shakespeare goes about the year 1571. His about father, the year? About the year 1571. They, don't, they, huh? they can't say no. for sure? They don't even know what day he was born. But I would also say if I was going to tell you a story about somebody and I didn't know a specific fact, I just not mention it there's a lot of guesswork in this chapter <laughs> why is this guy why is this cat so still to this day so much guesswork apart from his plays there are very little written records about the life of william shakespeare and did he write the plays did he not write the plays there was that whole discussion i mean we're gonna get there obviously oh yeah well i mean according to these guys <laughs> he wrote the plays. he wrote the plays <laughs> 
And honestly, there's a lot. There's a deep dive into when they think the plays were written, where they think the plays were written. I'm going to skip that part because it is boring as hell. Okay. <laughs> Thank you in advance. So where did we, where did we leave off? I'm sorry, I interrupted. You had just talked oh. about approximately... Yes, 1571. So yes. to the grammar school then with some preparation, we hold that William Shakespeare goes about the year 1571. His father is at this time, as we have said, chief alderman of the town. That's like being mayor. Like oh. John Shakespeare was uh, a big deal. So uh, Shakespeare's dad's a mayor. Yes. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Although it was called bailiff back then. But can we just say mayor? Yeah, Mayor Shakespeare. Okay. Yeah. He is a gentleman now of repute and authority. He is Master John Shakespeare. And assuredly, the worthy curate of the neighboring village of Luddington, Thomas Hunt, who was also the schoolmaster, would have received his new student with some kindness as his, quote, shining morning face first passed out of the main street into that old court through which the upper room of learning was to be reached, a new life would be opening upon him. The humble minister of religion who was his first instructor has left no memorials of his talents or his acquirements. And in a few years, another master came after him, Thomas Jenkins, also unknown to fame. All praise and honor be to them, for it is impossible to imagine that the teachers of William Shakespeare were evil instructors, giving the boy husks instead of wholesome ailment. They could not have been harsh and perverse instructors, for such spoil the gentlest natures, and his was always gentle. My gentle Shakespeare is he called by a rough but noble spirit, they don't say which, one in whom was all honesty and genial friendship under a rude exterior. His wondrous abilities could not be spoiled even by ignorant instructors. Another wow. bold assumption made that he must have had the best possible teachers to bring out right. his talents. Right. I don't know about you, David, but I feel like most artists come from like broken backgrounds. Uh, a lot of them do. And yeah. a lot of artists are confronted by mentors and teachers who are extremely hard on them because they see the genius in them and are pushed. And for them just to describe William Shakespeare as a kid as so winsome and lovely, like I've crossed paths with a couple of kid prodigies and they're zero fun to be around. <laughs> they are they are garbage people. Do you know what I mean? They are yes. like ob obnoxious, rude, you know, because they're craving all of this stimulation because their minds are working so fast. Mm -hmm. So I'm sort of calling bullshit on, on on this section. I think that's fair. Also, how many evil, perverse instructors were out there in the school system that they had to flag this? <laughs> right? In the middle of this thing... The pan this pandemic, they also have this scourge of evil, perverse professors. Frankly, my favorite teachers have been not necessarily the evil and perverse ones, but the teachers who pushed me. Oh, for in sure. In unexpected ways or opened my mind up to an idea to consider and sort of leave it with me to figure out how I felt about it. Like mm -hmm. that's, that's the most empowered learning. Of the earlier part of that career of William Shakespeare, nothing can probably ever be known with certainty. It won't stop them from making a lot of assumptions. <laughs> his father added to his independent means, we have no doubt, by combining several occupations in the principal one of looking after a little land. Let's take a deep dive. Let's take okay. a brief dive into wow. John Shakespeare. The mayor. Mayor, mayor, mayor Shakespeare. Mayor Shakespeare. Okay. Just, yeah. So what I could find out about John Shakespeare, because I was curious, 
Um, he began to acquire property in his 30s mm-hmm. and started climbing the social ladder in Stratford. So not much has changed. If you have property, you start to mean something. Mm-hmm. In 1556, he was appointed to the envious position of ale tester. Is this before or after his mayorship? This is before he became mayor. So owns land and then becomes an ale tester. Becomes ale tester, which reminds me of when I was in Cuba. I went to Havana and I took a tour of the nationalized cigar factory. And at the very end of like the process of like rolling the cigars and like, you know, like packing them or whatever, there was one guy whose job it was to test the cigars. And he just sat there in an undershirt reading a newspaper, smoking cigars one at a time. That was his job. I loathe cigars, but that sounds so unbelievably sexy, like <laughs> that he's just sitting in this undershirt, like in a sexy leatherback chair, just smoking cigars. I mean, that's that's kind of great. David, I will leave how he looked to your imagination. Oh, there's a full picture in there right now. Okay. So an ale tester is the same thing, but with, I'm assuming... Ale. Ale. I think it was an honorary position in a way, you know, like bestowed upon him. It's not a, it's right. not a rough gig, like... He's the ale tester. I'm surprised that this book isn't like, because this man had something to do with Shakespeare, that Shakespeare is his son, then as soon as people recognize that, then they may, gave him land and made him an ale tester. Because that's the way that this book feels like the narrative is. It's just like, oh, it's you true. were related to Shakespeare? People just were nice to you. Instead, we get a picture of an artist who had the means to create because he came from an upper middle class lifestyle. <laughs> It's always the way. La plus que ça change. <laughs> la plus que ça reste la même. Uh, I feel like I'm going to learn so much from this experiment. Oh, I, like, I, yeah. I'm excited. I'm excited to teach you what I've learned. Thank you, Paul. Okay. Ale tester. Let's talk, yeah, let's talk about what, what else he became. Okay. Ale tester in 1556. That was followed by many civic positions, including Chamberlain, Constable in 1558, Alderman in 1564, and finally in 1568, the position of high bailiff, which was mayor, Mayor Shakespeare in 1568. Now, how did he make his money? He was one of 22 glovers in the area. Gloves were a big deal. So he made gloves? He made gloves. And he's an ale tester? Ale tester, again, not his main hustle. His main hustle was gloving. And where's the mom in all of this? Where's Shakespeare's wife? I guess she will get nary a mention in this particular tome. David, I don't know if I need to remind you this. This book is called The Pictorial Treasury of Famous Men and Famous Deeds. Right. 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 So I I think it's Mary. I think Mary Shakespeare is not mentioned in this book. Yeah, she's off the table. Off the table today. Fine. Um, So gloves were a huge business, Mm -hmm. but he also had a side hustle. Which was? The illegal unlicensed wool market. This is starting to turn a little bit shady for me. Well, it turned shady for him. (laughs) He lost his fortune. John Shakespeare died in ruin. Uh, In the 1570s, he landed in court uh, on charges of illegal wool purchases. What was... what? He didn't have a license to sell wool. He got caught selling wool. After that, things started falling apart. Um... Uh, for him, he stopped attending council meetings. Uh, he had money trouble. He had lots of debts. So things were like amazing, and then things blew up in his face. Right. That's the way it goes in uh, 1570s England. Well, I mean, also, are we getting the the full picture 
of England at this time from this book. I'm oh, just no, not at all. Right. No, 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 no. I had to do. I mean, we didn't even get that that picture from this book. I had to do some research. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so when you say deep dive, you're diving <laughs> off the book into an actual yes. reliable into resource. Another book. Okay, yeah. fair enough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fair enough. I appreciate the research you've done, Paul. Oh, it was that's my favorite part. All right, so here we go. Okay. The earliest connected narrative of Shakespeare's life, that of Roe, thus briefly continues the history of the boy. Upon his leaving school, he seems to have given entirely into that way of living which his father proposed to him, and in order to settle in the world after a family manner, he thought it fit to marry while he was yet very young. His wife was the daughter of one Hathaway, said to have been a substantial woman in the neighborhood of Stratford. Okay, Anne Hathaway. So Shakespeare Jr. meets Anne Hathaway. He's 18, she's 26. Ooh. And pregnant with his first child. It was a shotgun wedding. Is this like the scandal of the century? That's a good question. They definitely, I don't know, they didn't seem to make too big a deal about the age difference, but they definitely rushed the wedding because she was pregnant. Notably, their first child doesn't get mentioned in this book. They don't want to sully the story. Right. So it goes on, like, early in 1585, twin children were born to him, and they were baptized on the 2nd of February as Hamnet... And Judith. Susanna is the name of his first child. So he had Susanna and then he had the twins. Yeah. Susanna and the twins. And these are all his and Anna's kids. Yeah. Does he have more than, I, I mean, don't want to rush the story, but does he have more than one wife? No, not that I know of. Oh, okay. yeah. beautiful. I haven't seen Shakespeare in Love in a while. I'm not sure what happened It's to so that. good. It is honestly, I still love that movie. It's a good movie. Okay. <clears throat> oh. Here comes my favorite part. Oh. The cause which drove Shakespeare from Stratford is thus stated by Rowe. He had, by a misfortune common enough to young fellows, fallen into ill company, and amongst them some that made a frequent practice of deer-stealing engaged him more than once in robbing a park that belonged to Sir Thomas Lucy of Charlecott. For this he was prosecuted by that gentleman as he thought somewhat too severely, and in order to revenge that ill usage he made a ballad upon him. And though this probably the first essay of his poetry be lost, yet it is said to have been so very bitter that it redoubled the prosecution against him to that degree that he was obliged to leave his business and family in Warwickshire for some time and shelter himself in London." He steals some deer, he gets caught, he gets prosecuted, engages in a flame war by writing a ballad about the guy, gets sued again, has to leave. Do you know, I think my favorite part about this whole thing is you reading from the book and then suddenly the words start to sound like the teacher in Charlie Brown because it's just like written in such a way that I don't understand. And then you'll look up at me and you'll just succinctly decode what i've just heard and i'm just like oh i love that clarity this like basically shakespeare's being an artist he's singing around with artists doing artisty things Mm -hmm. stealing deer i don't get but you know like he's just like i mean a book like this is going to call artist and artist culture uh, you're hanging around with people of ill repute like they're not going to look kindly on yeah with the artist experience or or like challenging 
conventional thinking or whatever. It's true. And unfortunately, I looked it up. I don't think this happened. The, the the being exiled from Stratford, <laughs> yeah. the stealing deer, and yeah, they don't. They, 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 they people generally agree this didn't happen. This is this is just a story that gets passed down. Why on earth is that? Why would you like? Mm, we've got to beef up this. I don't know. He's hanging around with a bunch of like crazy people, and they're stealing deer off private property. Like that's the that's the angle you choose. I think what happened with Shakespeare by the time eighteen eighty rolls around, he's become a legend, right? And so one of the legends is this Robin Hood style thing, where it's just like oh, he was a never do well, you know, uh, a devil may care uh, deer poacher. Right. Yeah. I think this is one of the reasons that I'm I'm not a Shakespeare fan. Mm-hmm. I've never really been particularly won over by his his work because the preciousness around him and also the the sort of like information and disinformation is just like is this guy the guy that we all think he is? We don't know. We just don't know. And what fascinates me mostly about this chapter is the degree to which the authors want to convince us yeah of who he is. He's a deer-stealing ne'er-do-well, mm-hmm. apparently. Although John Shakespeare, at the time of his son's early marriage, was not, as we think, in distressed circumstances, but he would be later, because... <laughs> Spoiler alert. Yeah. His means were not such probably at any time as to have allowed him to have borne the charge of his son's family. That William Shakespeare maintained them by some honorable course of industry, we cannot doubt. Scrivener or schoolmaster, he was employed. It is on every account to be believed that the altered circumstances in which he had placed himself in connection with the natural ambition which a young man, a husband, and a father would entertain led him to London not very long after his marriage. In 1589, when Shakespeare was only 25, he was the joint proprietor in the Blackfriars Theatre with a fourth of the other proprietors below him on the list. He had, at 25, a standing in society. He had the means, without a doubt, of maintaining his family as he advanced in the proprietorship of the same theater he realized a fortune. Meaning, he wasn't a deadbeat. (laughs) (laughs) Why couldn't you have written this book? (laughs) Because it would be like five pages long. But you know what? That's maybe how long it should be. They seem really intent on letting you know that, like, yeah, he left London. He left his wife and kids in Stratford. Yeah. But he was, you know, he didn't ditch them. He he was making all that cash. But let's face it. Like, we're we're looking at a a, a prodigal, potentially prodigal uh, young man who is uh, privileged at this time. So he's out having sex with everybody. And I've got zero judgment about this. Like he's he is he is having sex and partying and writing and being in jeans. Like we you know like but it's it's all of this dressing on the truth. We can't just like you know let's call it what it is. He was a party animal. Yeah, let, yeah. you know, and and anyone uh, in in those kinds of in that kind of a position often is a party animal because they're experiencing and that's driving their creativity. Mm-hmm. And I'm zero again. I'm not I'm no not, judgment. I'm not judging at all. I wish I was able to read to you uh, accounts of William Shakespeare partying in London. I mean, that's the story I think we want to hear. But sadly, no records exist. We can only imagine that uh, semi-bald man with his thin goatee just spilling malt and mead all over his uh, ruffle, whatever that is, around his neck. Just get like it's it was probably there, it's literally there for probably sop up 
uh, all the drinks he would spill when he was so tanked after a performance of Love's Labor's Lost. We're going to learn more about Shakespeare, what he did after he moved home, what kind of neighbor he was, that and more after this brief but necessary break. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing... The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group. No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. We're back. You know, one of the things that I have learned. Um, as I read more and more about the Victorian age, is that they were obsessed with manners, they were obsessed with morality, and also with improving your class. Uh, The middle class was growing around the time of this book, and everybody was obsessed with gaining status and prestige in society. And I think that's why this book looks at Shakespeare through the lens of his moral character. You know, as you know, as you've heard, they go to great lengths, they're falling over themselves trying to show us how virtuous a human he was. I don't know how necessary that is, but nevertheless, that's what they're doing, and it forces us to ask, is, is that true? Was he that good a guy? And that's pretty much the direction that we're taking as this podcast continues. We're skipping ahead 10 years, 10 years of hard partying uh, that nobody remembers. Not him, not Shakespeare, not these authors, no one. He's, he wakes up 10 years later and he's like, I got to get my life together. Here we go. It's, it's part two of The Man for All Time. All right, here we go. We're skipping 10 years. He was, he was writing, he was performing, he was partying. Right. The close of the 16th century brings us to Shakespeare's 35th year. He had been about 15 years in London. We are not willing to believe that this whole time was passed in the capital. And they go on to the reasons why. In 1596, his only son died. And in Stratford, he was buried. Um, They don't say why he died or how he died, but they think it was the plague. The parochial register gives us the melancholy record of this loss. This event, afflicting as it must have been, did not render the great poet's native town less dear to him. They also don't know if he went to the funeral. Because it's a long way to go from London to Stratford when you don't have cars. But it's your kid. But it's your kid. You gotta try. You gotta try? You gotta try to make your kid's funeral. I think you show up. Okay. Yeah, I don't have kids, but I'd say you show up. In 1597, he purchased the principal house in Stratford. It was built by Sir Hugh Clopton in the reign of Henry VII and was devised by him under the name of The Great House. 
So this is a premium property. They estimate there was between 20 and 30 rooms in this place. So Shakespeare's doing okay. He is fine. Yeah, he was wealthy. Right, so we've stopped, he, we stopped talking about his, his artistic uh, uh, achievements, and now we're talking about how fabulously wealthy he was as a result. And again, in support of the theory that he took care of his family right. is generally the thing. It would appear... <laughs> Does this book, like, approach any... Like, it, it, it just completely delegitimizes its entire... Every, every sentence is, it would appear. We're like, we will not talk in concrete terms. We're just simply going to hero worship. And it's just stuff that we've heard along the way. It's... Sorry, we don't know. Anecdotal at best. Yeah. His, but Shakespeare is amazing. Yeah. Hashtag Shakespeare FTW. It would appear at this period Shakespeare was desirous of retiring for the more laborious duties of his profession as an actor. He desired to be appointed, there is little doubt, to the office of Master of the Queen's Revels. Master of the Queen's Revels was the person in charge of deciding what plays got produced, which plays got to right. be performed in the court. Uh, Shakespeare wanted the job. Okay. This is probably a really good job. Uh, well, it sounds like it's a self-serving job because he can just promote his own creative um, ambitions and his own... As of which he was accused. Daniel, a brother poet, was appointed. And in a letter to the Lord Keeper, Sir Thomas Egerton, he thus speaks of one of the competitors for the office... It seemeth to my humble judgment that one who is the author of plays now daily presented on the public stages of London and the possessor of no small gains and moreover himself an actor in the king's company of comedians could not with reason pretend to be master of the Queen's Majesty's revels for as much as he would sometimes be asked to approve and allow of his own writings. Conflict of interest. I 100% agree. Yeah, 100%. It's like nothing annoys me more when... Uh, there's an artistic director at a at a theater. They get newly appointed, and the first play of the first season they they do is one of their own plays. And I'm like, that's not your job. That is not your job. Didn't it make you think of Toronto theater? It's the first thing it's I the, thought. Yeah, of. it's yeah. just like yeah, he's basically doing a Toronto theater move. I'm this book is making me like Shakespeare less. It, it would appear. Mm-hmm. It would appear. It would appear. Well, David, we may now suppose. <laughs> You're kidding. <laughs> no, 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 no. Are you, are you? We may now suppose that the great poet thus honored and esteemed had retired to Stratford, but the years from 1605 to his death in the April of 1616 were not idly spent. He was a practical farmer, we have little doubt. In 1604, he bought a moiety of the tithes of Stratford, which he would then probably collect in kind. Okay, I had to look this up. This is, a, this is a good indication of Shakespeare's business acumen. Let's have it. First of all, a moiety means half. Um, a tithe <laughs> uh, was a tax on all food and goods produced in Stratford, collected by the local parish, you know, to ostensibly improve the community and the parish. But it was an unpopular tax, so the parish never always wanted to collect it. William Shakespeare bought from the parish, a right to collect that tax. So he paid the church a large sum of money, and then all the taxes, a half of all those taxes, went to him instead. You know, I just, like I said, this book does nothing but maybe make me like him less. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We have a power-hungry, 
bon vivant who is pushing his artistic agenda in theaters and now taxing people after tossing the church a a big sum mm-hmm. it would it would appear we would suppose we it would appear well david we're not done he occupied the best house of the place he had there his quote curious knotted garden to amuse him <laughs> and his orchard had many a pippin of his own graphing pippin of his own graphing <laughs> yes a- you know what i'm just i'm going to take that and make that a band name a Pippin of his own grafting. A Pippin of his own grafting. Hi, this is uh, We Are a Pippin of his own grafting, and this is our first song, It Would Suppose. <laughs> we Would Suppose. Um, James I recommended the cultivation of mulberry trees in England. And who has not heard of Shakespeare's mulberry tree? David? No, haven't heard it. <laughs> um, mulberry's trees were encouraged by James I uh, uh, because silkworms will only feed on melber- mulberry trees, and James I was trying to grow a silk industry in England. That's why. Is anyone championing the, the greater good at this time in the world? Like, is anyone doing things that, that are going to help everyone, or is, is everyone just viciously obsessed with their own narrative and forwarding their own means? Yeah, doesn't it sound a lot like today? It does sound a lot like today. <laughs> Everyone agrees. <laughs> I, I don't. I, I don't know where we're heading. You preemptively disagree. I, I'm just preemptively saying I don't, but okay. Everyone agrees that during the last three or four years of his life, Shakespeare ceased to write. Yet, we venture to think that everyone is in error. <laughs> Naturally. Naturally. (laughs) The opinion is founded upon a belief that he only finally left London towards the close of 1613. It is evident from his purchase of a large house at Stratford, his constant acquisition of landed property there. Oh yeah, he bought lots of tracts of of land in the common fields. Not surprising. He wanted to, uh, I think he made money off of... um, Uh, Grain, growing grain there. It is evident that he must have partially left London before this period, but his biographers assume that he became wholly unemployed. When the days of leisure arrived, is it reasonable to believe that the greatest of intellects would suddenly sink to the condition of an everyday man? If those individuals who reason thus could present a satisfactory record of the dates of all of Shakespeare's work, and especially of his later works, we should still cling to the belief that some fruits of the last years of his literary industry had apparently wholly perished. So, they're saying, yes, he did keep writing, but, but those works have been lost. <laughs> yes, there was voter fraud, but, but. we can't find it. <laughs> uh, okay, here we go. We're in the home stretch. <laughs> the happy quiet of Shakespeare's retreat was not wholly undisturbed by calamity, domestic and public. His brother Richard, who was 10 years his junior, was buried at Stratford on the 4th of February, 1613. Of his father's family, his sister Joan, who had married Mr. William Hart of Stratford, was probably the only other left. The public calamity to which we have alluded was a great fire which broke out at Stratford on the 9th of July, 1614, that Shakespeare assisted with all the energy of his character in alleviating the miseries of this calamity and in the restoration of this town, we cannot doubt. There's no evidence that he helped. Yeah, I can totally doubt that. There's no evidence. Um, 54 houses burnt down because of the thatched roofs. 
it's a big problem with thatched roofs. I mean, we did learn that. We, we you know, humanity... We have moved it. on, we, yes. We figured it out. Back then, before there was insurance, you'd go around from door to door in neighboring communities and say, hey, pitch in, pitch in for the fire fund. Right. But we don't know if Shakespeare helped. We don't know that he didn't help. We just don't know that he did. But these guys are like, we can't doubt it. It's impossible to doubt. We will not doubt. <laughs> All right. Okay, this part sounds boring, but I find it interesting. In the same year, we find him taking some interest in the project of an enclosure in the common fields of Stratford. The enclosure would probably have improved his property and especially have increased the value of the tithes of the boiety of which he held a lease. You remember the tithes? Yes, I do. So the enclosure is literally the enclosing with a fence or hedges or ditches of common fields, which everybody in the community used to sustain themselves. One politician in London, Arthur Mainwaring, concocted a scheme to uh, enclose the fields to use for pastures, which uh, would not help the residents of Stratford, but help him and the original owner of all the lands. Naturally. Um, And pastures were pure profit because there was no employment. You just had a bunch of sheep. So you just make all the money off of the wool. Whereas everybody in Stratford was either using that land to feed themselves or to grow grain for, you know, their own economies. So everybody in Stratford was against it. Uh, And not only did they protest it, but violence broke out over this. Like people were, you know, like taking down the fences or the hedges. And then then the, the politicians sent thugs to beat up those people. Right. Um... It was a big deal, and it lasted for a long time. Okay. The Corporation of Stratford were opposed to the enclosure. They held that it would be injurious to the poorer inhabitants who were then deeply suffering from the desolation of the fire. And they appear to have been solicitous that Shakespeare should take the same view of the matter as themselves. And a memorandum in his handwriting, which still remains, exhibits the business-like manner in which Shakespeare informed himself of the details of the plan. And that is all the book says about Shakespeare's involvement. But Shakespeare did have a plan. His plan was to cut a deal with the guys enclosing the field to compensate him for any losses he would, rec- he would incur. Right, of course. That's total Shakespeare. So he, there's no evidence that he helped the poor citizens of Stratford. He helped himself by making sure that he didn't lose his interests. Right. Right. So that's what's up. <clears throat> Now, David, we're skipping to the end. I also want to point out that all through this book, Shakespeare is missing the middle E. They don't write his name with the middle E. And so it reads as Shakespeare all through this chapter. And it is hard not to imagine a movie starring Shaquille O'Neal where he becomes Shakespeare. Shakespeare. That would be a great movie. Shakespeare. I'd watch it. The will of Shakespeare thus commences. I, William Shakespeare of Stratford-upon-Avon, in the county of Warwick. Gentlemen, in perfect health and memory, God be praised, do make and ordain this my last will and testament. And yet within one month of this declaration, Shakespeare is no more. Tradition says that he died of a fever contracted at Stratford, the fever that is too often the attendant upon a hot spring when the low grounds upon a river bank have been recently inundated, is a fever that the good people of Stratford did not well understand at that day. Whatever was the immediate cause of his last illness, we may well believe 
that the closing scene was full of tranquility and hope, and that he who had sought, perhaps more than any man, to look beyond the material and finite things of the world should rest at the last in the, quote, peace which passeth all understanding, in that assured belief which the opening of his will has expressed with far more than formal solemnity. I commend my soul into the hands of God, my Creator, hoping and assuredly believing, through the only merits of Jesus Christ, my Savior, to be made partaker of life everlasting. The end. That's it. Good Lord. So we've read the first chapter in the pictorial treasury of famous men and famous deeds. Mm -hmm. We've learned a lot of... I, want, I don't want to say facts. No, there's a lot of supposition. <laughs> there's a lot of supposition about Shakespeare, mm -hmm. but it paints a portrait of a committed family man. <laughs> An extortionist. <laughs> yes. Uh, I mean, that's what's astonishing for me is to, to listen to how that book frames him, where the book puts the value and, and what it doesn't talk about. It doesn't talk about the women who would have played a huge huge role in his life uh it puts he you know he's a bon vivant who who writes a few great plays uh goes into some assorted businesses which may or may not be morally compassed in the right direction mm -hmm. and buys a few big houses and uh, protects his interests i mean and so so what is and the book bestows him with this value like talks about him like he's this heroic figure and it's not talking about at least half the story because there's no women mentioned. A term I learned yes. in reading about Shakespeare, not from this book, but from a, a different um, essay, was a term called bard washing. Pushing aside anything that feels negative or not on brand right. for what we believe about William Shakespeare. Nobody who wrote all these works could possibly have a single... Thing wrong with that. Yeah, poor character trait in his body or spirit. And wouldn't have needed the help of anybody else to achieve the things that he did. Mm -hmm. He could just do it all on his own. Here's, here's a question that I asked myself after reading this. Okay. 500 years later, right. does character matter? <laughs> this is a dark time in the world to ask that question. It's true, because we're, we're confronted by, you know, the, that... Like we just had, like the United States just had an election right. that was based on character. And I think maybe we've been confronted with that question as a society about character. Mm -hmm. And maybe we're rethinking what it is to be a leader and what we look for in people. I would like to think that this is a turning point for, I'm going to be an optimist always, I think, but that we're looking like where this book puts value, maybe we're rediscovering where we can put value. I'm trying to think of a, of, a, of a figure in history about whom we can make a character judgment. Well, Gandhi, like Gandhi, the spiritual yeah. leaders, like mm -hmm. Mother Teresa, although didn't some stuff about her come out in the last little while that was just like, she what? Yeah. And Gandhi, too. If we dig deep enough, we'll find some bad things about Gandhi. Yeah, but I mean, bad things are an important part of a spiritual journey because it's, it's, it's how you recover from the bad thing. Or what you learn in oh, the face yeah. of the bad thing. A hundred percent. Yes. Yes. 
Yeah, it doesn't fit I, the story that these guys want to tell because I no. think every story has to have a happy ending in this book. And there's no adversity. There's really no adversity. The death of the son, but it's glossed over and we just talk about everything he bought. The death of his son was literally offered as evidence for why he would still come back to see his family. It's sort of like, it's a weird propaganda. It's bardolatry is another term that oh, I read. Oh, goodness. You, yeah. I, you, you're doing the learning. This is good. Bardolatry is the, you know... The idolatry of William Shakespeare. Um, and uh, yeah, it's putting him on a pedestal and just cleaning up the story and taking out the complicated parts. Right. He was history's greatest like playwright, history's greatest emotional thinker. Like he saw into the soul that no other person could. There's no room for, you know, he had to take care of his real estate interests yeah. <laughs> at the expense of the poor and starving in Stratford. So there you go. That's, um, that's chapter one. What do you walk away with from chapter one? Uh, I think the, the view of a, of a great British man viewed only the way the British could. <laughs> Fair point. Yeah. What Fair about you? Point. Um, I assume, no, uh, I suppose, uh, that I don't think we'll ever really know Shakespeare. No, he is unknowable. And that he is, is unknowable. Uh, that's, I mean, that's, I think that's what I was getting at about character earlier, that the longer, the more time that passes, you know, from a person and their deeds, the more their deeds define them. And less their character. Mm-hmm. You know, like we know Shakespeare by his plays and his works. And maybe that's enough. But we will never know what kind of guy he was. Right. And it comes back to that question that we often get asked as artists. Or that um, the thing to remember is you are, you are not what you do. You are who you are. You're, you are your character. Yeah. And, you know, like, even though I think I might have a worse of opinion of him now, I, I like that. <laughs> well, I, the land dealings alone. Yeah. The extortion. I like that I can look at him as someone who was not just their work. You know, I like to uh, now I, I like that, you know, he did what he did. He wrote what he wrote. But now there's a person in there who's just like a guy who had a job. Yeah. He comes home, he's like, well, fuck, I mean, you know, Burnham Wood is moving now in my play. The fifth draft, I'm moving a forest. This is where I'm at with Macbeth. Ugh, I'm done. Give me some malt. I, but I, I, I love that. Yeah. I love that. I, I like love that, that knowing of him. Yeah. Yeah, me too. So we're richer for it. We're richer for it. I want to thank David Tomlinson for joining me on this chapter of the dubious book of famous deeds. Uh, David, you can find David on social media uh, at DavBenTom on Twitter and Instagram. You can also watch him on Star Trek Discovery and on his web series, The Writer's Block, which you can find on CBC Gem. Next episode. The pictorial treasury takes us far away from the banks of the River Avon and lands us high up in the unforgiving mountains of the Caucasus for a chapter that is action-packed and blood-soaked. Brace yourself for a tale of conquest and vengeance in Shamil, the Circassian Chief. 
The Dubious Book of Famous Deeds is produced and recorded in Toronto. It's part of the Sonar Network. Go to thesonarnetwork.com and check out the many funny and thoughtful podcasts offered there. If you enjoy this podcast, please leave me a review. It goes a long way towards helping this show find its audience. You can subscribe as well so that you never miss an episode. Follow the podcast online at Famous Deeds on Twitter and at Famous.Deeds on Instagram. And you can also follow me on Twitter and Instagram at BatesBot9000. If you want to get in touch, whether to ask questions, correct my work, lodge a complaint, or just say hi, I want to hear from you. Shoot an email to FamousDeeds at gmail.com. And if you'd like to support the work I put into researching and producing this podcast, why not buy me a coffee? You can do so at buymeacoffee.com slash famous.deeds. It's an easy way to support creators all over the internet. Until next time, I'm Paul Bates. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been brought to you by the Sonar Network. Sonar!